We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Gapes, the former Labour MP for Ilford South from 1992 to 2019 and the Change UK MP for the same constituency in 2019, former chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee from 2005 to 2010 and Change UK spokesperson for Foreign Affairs and Defence in 2019. And I've got Mike on to discuss a fascinating new book which he's contributed to called Change the Independent Group. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask is, what made you decide to contribute to this book? Well, um, after um, the uh, kamikaze mission of uh, the 2019 general election, um, the five of us who uh, had been left after the events um, and the internal divisions that we'd had um, um, basically decided that uh, there was no future in having our party. We, we, the three of us who'd fought in the election, that's Anna Subri, Chris Leslie and myself, um, had all lost. Um, and uh, we didn't have any representations. And so there was no point in, in, in the project that we'd started with others in February. It clearly not succeeded. And so we disbanded the party, but we thought um, we should at least place on the record our perspective um, of what had happened and our view. And we, we, we came to this decision around the spring of 2020. But of course, then the country went into lockdown. And um, so we couldn't meet <laughs> together <laughs> and uh, chat through. So what we did instead, we, we, we found somebody, a man uh, called Peter McNabb, who basically conducted a series of interviews with us over Zoom um, and then transcribed those. And then we, he put together and edited this book based upon entirely our words, our interviews and an intermeshing of what we said, um, which gives our internal story. Now, of course, subsequent to our decision that we were going to do this, the, uh, the book by um, Gabriel uh, Pogrand and mm. Patrick Maguire um, left out, was published last year, which gives a take, a version of some of the events that led up to the split in the Labour Party and then the formation of Change UK. Um, but it doesn't give the whole story and in one or two small aspects, it's not accurate. Um, and so in a sense, what we've done will complement and give um, further information to those who uh, have read that book and are interested in um, what happened to the disaster of, of what Corbyn Labour and the split in the Labour Party. And is there a future for sensible centre-left or centre-right politics in this country with the polarisation which we now have between the vote leave Brexit Tories and Corbyn Labour as was, and the long Corbyn legacy that we're now experiencing. Um, before we um, talk about some of the things that are discussed in the book, I'd like to talk a bit about um, you and uh, your political career before uh, the events of the book. Um, when you were younger, you were uh, Vice President of the uh, Council of European uh, National 
youth committees. And I just wonder with the way that um, the relationship between uh, Britain and the EU has changed so much uh, since then, looking back on that period, do you think that you could have predicted that the UK would leave the European Union? Or do you think that this is something that has grown much more in uh, recent years and wasn't perhaps as uh, prevalent in the, as in uh, the 1970s when you were vice president of the Council of European National Youth Committees? Um, I, um, I think, um, firstly, the um, CENIC was um, not an EU institution. It was a Council of Europe institution. Mm. It brought together the national youth committees of all the Council of Europe countries. So it was, in a sense, a West European Cold War organisation. And our job at that time was to engage, and I was vice president responsible for um, uh, East-West relations, uh, to try and build cooperation and, and deal with the conflict of the Cold War period. The politics is very different now uh, that uh, of course subsequently we, that was that was in 77 that I was vice president of Senec um, and 77 to 79 now um, the UK had only just had the referendum the first European referendum where Harold Wilson's government uh, uh, campaign to stay in because Heath had taken the country into the European community um, and then Wilson Labour was officially opposed to that but Wilson resolved the issue mm. by a referendum. Um, I suppose in a sense Cameron might have thought that he could resolve the issue in a similar way <laughs> but of course he, he and George Osborne ran the dreadful campaign and they of course or didn't have um, the, the benefit of that time of a united Conservative Party, apart from a few nutcases. Um, uh, they had a, a very split Conservative Party and they also had um, uh, the uh, appalling uh, uh, seven and a half out of ten Jeremy Corbyn mm. refer, refusing to uh, campaign in any serious way on the Labour side. But I, I, I think the, the context is very different. And of course, the European Union was, um, by the time of, the, of our referendum, um, an expanded body that had gone from the six to the nine to the 12 um, to ultimately the 28 country members of the EU, which um, <clears throat> uh, we you know, included a large number of former um, uh, states that had been part of the Warsaw Pact mm. and the Soviet sphere of influence and the the Baltic states which had then been liberated from the Soviet Union after uh, Gorbachev. So the world is very different to what it was in the 1970s. Um, I'd also like to um, just touch upon because of course this has been in the news uh, lately. Um, in the uh, late 90s when Labour uh, was returned to government under Tony Blair you served in the um, Northern Ireland office as a um, parliamentary private secretary. Looking at Northern Ireland uh, now and the situation that has uh, arisen uh, relating to the um, violence that has occurred of late in Northern Ireland, and, and looking back to that period when you were uh, in the Northern Ireland office, do you think that um, the differences between the North and the South were 
um, in a worse state going into the Good Friday Agreement than they are now? Or do you think that even though that there is still tension and, and violence, that things are better now than they were in the late 1990s? Oh, things are immeasurably better. Um, firstly, um, one of the things I spent two years in the Northern Ireland office and I was there in the talks when we got the Good Friday Agreement in Belfast in 1998. Um, my minister was Paul Murphy, who was the political development minister who dealt with all the nitty gritty of the negotiations. Um, things are immeasurably better. The relationship between the, um, at least until Johnson, um, the relationship between the British government and the uh, Republic of Ireland governments uh, has been very good, very close. Um, started with John Major, who, who began the process um, with Albert Reynolds, and then Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, and the sub subsequent Tijaks who have worked really well <clears throat> with a succession of prime ministers. But of course, that has now been shattered because when we got that agreement in uh, uh, 1998, it was predicated on the fact that as well as having a common travel area between uh, the Republic and the UK, which we've had for decades, um, we were also going to be in the same economic single market. And the big problem that has been caused, of course, is, um, and the, uh, Blair and Major pointed this out during the referendum, but nobody listened to them, um, is that that um, basis of the cooperation um, has been put into jeopardy. And I've pointed this out in, in Parliament um, uh, when I made a speech a few years ago um, about the fact that Ireland has an all-Ireland um, uh, agricultural relationship. Uh, there is a one um, um, milk marketing body, <clears throat> Irish whiskey um, from the north and from the south is sold internationally by a, a promotion of, of Irish whiskey, including that which is distilled in, in Antrim. Um, so there, there is a whole relationship there. And um, the other thing that's very, very different is that Northern Ireland um, socially, economically, um, was, was seen in the 1960s and 70s to be more advanced despite the sectarianism than um, the Republic. But the Republic had that fantastic period of boom um, as a result of its membership of the European Union. Um, there was, of course, a big bust and a recession, but it's come out of that um, much better. Um, the Dublin is transformed as a city to what it was decades ago. And um, there's been a huge amount of inward investment, particularly from the United States, uh, but also from elsewhere into, into the Republic of Ireland. And, of course, you've also had the social changes. You know, they've had women presidents. Um, there's been the referendums uh, to do with divorce and abortion. And, in fact, on social legislation now, the Republic of Ireland is in advance of Northern Ireland. Mm. And, and we've got this legacy of uh, the, the role of the Catholic Church may have been reduced in the South, but the, the Catholic Church in the North, mm. combined with the extreme Protestants mm. <laughs> um, um, of the DUP, um, socially conservative, and, uh, and that has a, is, is an interesting consequence. So there's been enormous change. Um, 
obviously one of the things that was a, a, a driving force uh, in the creation of Change UK, the independent group, was the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Now, obviously, in the book, you discuss the um, uh, run-up uh, to the leadership uh, election, which Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. Um, but for the listeners, do you think you could explain what you think was the reason that the Labour Party ended up electing Jeremy Corbyn? Um, firstly, part of this is due to uh, Ed Miliband. Mm. Um, the changes in the rules for the procedure were brought in under him, uh, whereby people could sign up and pay £3 to become members, and um, uh, uh, the, the, the reduction in the role of members of parliament in terms of the, the voting for the leader, the getting rid of the electoral college. Secondly, when Labour lost office in 2010, um, after being in government since 97, 13 years, um, Miliband's approach, Ed Miliband, that is, um, was a, almost a year zero approach. There was no attempt to defend the record of the Labour government. And the narrative was very much um, that we're, look, we're only going to go for the future, let's forget about the past. And I think that tainted the way in which the future politics of the party was seen. Um, and of course, the members of the party, after we'd lost in 2015 with, uh, with Ed Miliband, um, then there were people, um, one of the candidates, Liz Kendall, described herself as the Eat Your Greens candidate. And I supported Liz Kendall in that ill-fated uh, episode. Um, but she wanted the party to confront the reasons we'd lost in 2015 and also in 2010 and have an honest assessment of the benefits of, of what we had achieved in the previous years in government, but also why we no longer resonated with the public. Mm. But most of the members of the Labour Party, as I said in the book, uh, wanted a comfort blanket. They weren't prepared to confront that difficult issue. And also others came in from various far left groups and uh, uh, former Labour members who'd left or been expelled from various reasons under the militant tendency, um, came back, some elderly people, but also a lot of young people were inspired by the idea, and I said there are parallels with what happened in the Democratic Party in the US with Bernie Sanders a year later, um, of, of lots of uh, idealistic young people uh, voting for a, a man who'd been in Parliament 32 years and never held any position of responsibility, mm -hmm. um, an elderly white man appealing to um, this, <laughs> um, this cohort of, of, of idealistic young people. And I, I think we the there was a kind of failure. The the, the other three candidates, um, uh, apart from Liz Kendall, was um, Yvette Cooper, who had served in government and very very competent. But she had a kind of what I described as a submarine strategy, of surfacing to make some important statements, but not actually campaigning particularly well. And Andy Burnham, who at that time had moved from being a, a Blairite, ultra Blairite mm. in the terms of the government, 
to try and position himself as the left-wing candidate in what, what he thought originally was going to be a three-person contest. And then Jeremy Corbyn's late in, entry meant that Burnham was no longer the candidate of, of the left in that the contest. Um, and so his flip-flopping didn't actually succeed. And Corbyn gave a very simple answer. You know, it was all about, oh, we, we, we need peace, we need socialism, um, international cooperation, and um, vote for me, and you don't have to confront any difficult issues. Mm. Um, and that succeeded because a combination of um, his support from some far-left trade union leaders, particularly Unite Union, Len McCluskey, and this group of new members and also people coming back and joining. Um, lots of people came in to join the party just to vote in that contest. And these, I, I've described them elsewhere, some of them are clicktivists, not activists. Mm. And many, although there was a significant increase in the paper membership of the Labour Party, there wasn't an increase in, in terms of the people who were going around knocking on doors and doing the work uh, of campaigning. Now, you mentioned Andy Burnham there, and of course, um, in recent days, in uh, reaction to the results of the local elections, a lot of people have been um, turning towards uh, Andy Burnham, in including some of those on the left, suggesting that he's a, a potential future uh, leader of the Labour Party. What do you think of the, the transformation? As you mentioned, um, Burnham once being viewed as, a, as an ultra Blairite to being seen as the, the hope of the, the left. What, what, what do you think has, has caused this change in uh, the, the public's perception of Andy Burnham? Well, he's had a very high profile in the coronavirus. He's done a good job as mayor of Manchester and um, greater Manchester. Um, and he, he is um, a, a man of enormous political ability. I mean, no doubt. I mean, he was a, a good minister, a good cabinet minister. And he, but um, I, my personal take is um, I don't think the Labour Party should be trying to change its leader again. Um, the, the problems are far more deep-seated. As Tony Blair himself has pointed out this week, as David Miliband in an interview on which I've listened to this morning on Times Radio um, has said, um, these issues are not about single leaders. This is about the, the culture and the identity of the Labour Party. And it does face, um, I think Alistair Campbell's written in the New European as well this week, mm. Uh, an existential crisis. Um, and I think that's right. And I think whoever inherited the disaster of the worst election results since um, 1935, uh, whoever took over from Corbyn was going to face an enormous challenge. And of course, the pandemic and the restrictions on campaigning and the legacy of the Brexit uh, general election um, have made it very, very difficult. But Starmer has done some positive things, in my view, on trying to reform the party internally. But the challenge he faces is big, really big. Um, it's bigger. He's got to be a combination of both Neil Kinnock, who saved the Labour Party and turned it round so that it was on the verge of winning an election, but didn't in 92. And I, I worked for Neil Kinnock in, in that period in the 80s um, and 
also of Tony Blair. You've got to both reform and change and modernise the party, but also project and win over the country for a sane centre-left politics. And I'm not sure that any individual is capable of doing that, um, but time is short. And so Starmer faces enormous challenges, but I don't think Starmer himself is the problem. I think it's the Labour Party and its culture that is the problem. Uh, now, one of the things that um, Chris Leslie mentions in the section of the book, uh, talking about the creation of the, the birthday club uh, WhatsApp group, he mentions that none of you were necessarily inherently uh, rebellious MPs as such. Do you think there's something about the nature of the House of Commons that um, means that even in situations when members of parliament don't feel comfortable in the political parties that they've been elected to represent. It's very difficult for them to leave those political parties. Well, it's not just the nature of the House of Commons, it's the nature of the British political system, particularly for the Labour Party. You, you, I, 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 the, my longest ever relationship, apart from with my parents and my brother, has been with the Labour Party. Mm. I joined when I was 16 and I left after 50 years as a member. And, and I, you know, I, I, I say in the book, um, you cut me open and like a stick of rock inside, it will be stamped Labour. I've still got those Labour values, even mm. though I left. And I felt a, a big weight had been lifted from me and I wasn't agonising every day. Nevertheless, I still regret the fact that it came to that. Um, I'm not saying that I, I regret the decision to leave because people at the time said it, I looked 10 years younger and I did feel that way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, but it, 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 it is a real, the, the, the question of loyalty and being part of something is very important for, for, for in, in the Labour Party, maybe less so in the Conservatives, I'm not sure. Anna Subri certainly says so. She thinks that it, and she says that in the book. Um, but I, um, there is also um, a loyalty that comes from being part of a collective. Uh, you don't achieve anything in politics on your own. Mm. You have to work with others. Um, and obviously, people have personal ambitions. So if you want to get on and you want to become a chair of a committee or uh, get involved on a a committee, or if you want to become a, a minister or um, shadow minister, then clearly, um, you know, being seen to be loyal is normally the best route, although sometimes being seen to be disloyal is the way to be put into positions in order to gag you and silence you. Uh, that has been known in certain. I think um, I think it was David Owen was mm. was uh, became foreign secretary at a very young level, <laughs> a young age, because um, uh, that was a way to uh, <laughs> stop him being critical on uh, on defence policy. I think at the time. One of the turning points that's mentioned in the book is um, the Syria vote, and of course um, the speech that uh, Hillary uh, Ben gave, which was um, very much uh, in disagreement with Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think, after he'd given that speech, that Hillary Benn should have challenged Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership? Or do you think that if he had, it, it wouldn't have been successful? Well, first of all, um, I have to give a caveat. I was um, in hospital in an induced coma 
at the time that Hillary Benn made that speech. <laughs> I had my ruptured aneurysm on the 27th of November, and uh, which is, and the actual debate was, I think, the first week in December. Mm. <laughs> um, so um, um, I don't think Hillary ever wanted to challenge for the leadership. I don't think that that was what it was about. It was about what was right and what was wrong. I think the circumstances um, happened uh, when the challenge um, happened and the no confidence votes in 2016. That wasn't because of the Syria vote. That was because of Corbyn's ridiculous remark about triggering Article 50 immediately the day after the referendum result. Um, but the Syria vote was a factor and um, subsequently also the... Um, statements that Corbyn made in 2018 after the Skripal's poisoning in Salisbury, March 2018. That was also a factor in this whole process. Um, and for me, foreign policy was one of the main reasons why I thought Corbyn was unfit to be Prime Minister. Um, and that's why one of the main reasons why I left. Do you think, and, and just going on, um to when you did leave, that, that there were people suggesting that as you had gone from one political party uh, to another, that, you know, you and the uh, other members of parliament should have held by-elections uh, to, to regain uh, the seats under your uh, new colours, or, or, or at least to, to see if you could regain the seats under your new colours. Do you think, looking back, that that might have been a, a good way to get better publicity for you? Or do you think that that was always an argument designed about ensuring that um, there would have to be this contest and, and potentially uh, getting you out of Parliament? Uh, the problem we had, um, and I personally um, was torn about this, um, the problem we had was the timing would have meant that there would have been a reduction in the number of anti-Brexit MPs and pro-people's vote referendum MPs during the duration of any by-election. And this is at a time when Parliament um, was having votes that were on the knife edge, if you remember, mm. in uh, 2019, uh, around the whole issue of the uh, you know, Theresa May's deal and alternatives and the, the people's vote campaign was building and so on. And my, my view at that time... <coughs> Sorry, my view at that time was that um, the numbers were so tight in Parliament that it wouldn't wouldn't be sensible to, to facilitate any by-elections at that time. Um, but per, in, in, in retrospect, you might be right. I might well have been able to force a by-election, stand in it, and um, get a much bigger vote than I did in the general election. But we, you know, we never expected a general election in December anyway hmm. so uh, <laughs> the issue is a bit academic now but um the, the, the example of people standing in by-elections and then winning as the incumbent is mixed hmm. i think you can go back to i think bruce douglas Mann resigned in mitchum and morden um and forced a by-election when he joined the sdp and actually lost and angela hmm. rumbold won for the conservatives and Bruce Douglas Mann had been a Labour MP. Um, the Labour candidate in that by-election was David Nicholas, because I, 
I lived in Putney at the time. I remember working for him in that <laughs> campaign. Um, and then I, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Dick Taverne may have resigned and forced a by-election um, in the 70s when... Mm, in Lincoln. Um, in Lincoln, when, um, and won it. And then subsequently, Margaret Beckett won the seat, I think. Mm. Or um, stood, stood as the candidate. I'm not sure whether she was elected. Maybe she was. I, I, anyway, it's a long time ago. <laughs> In the book, you mentioned um, that... Uh, there were more uh, Labour MPs who, who felt in, in, in the same way uh, that you did uh, about wanting to, to leave the Labour Party and perhaps set up another party. Why do you think that more Labour MPs didn't uh, leave the party who, who felt uh, the same as you and, and joined Change UK? OK, I think there are... Everybody comes to this from a personal position. Mm. Um, you've got family you've got partners, you've got friends and colleagues and staff who may well be part of your Labour family, if you like. You've got um, your own residual loyalties and it's always possible to come to a view, well, I'll just hang on another few days and see if something happens. You know, it's mm. the kind of putting something off, uh, always delaying. Um, and there's always a question of what is the right timing. I mean, in retrospect, if we'd have known there was going to be a European election, um, going when we did in February was not a very sensible thing, time to do. It would have been better to have gone earlier <laughs> if we'd have known. But then, of course, going earlier, um, none of us were ready to go that early, um, and the events overtook um, and maybe it would have been better if you're thinking long term to not go just before a local election where you can't stand candidates because you aren't a party. Mm -hmm. And when we left originally, our intention was not to set up a party at that stage. We were going to set up a group of independent MPs. We we're going to have the policy process uh, lasting several months, a listening exercise around the country, culminating in a conference in the autumn. <laughs> which would have then potentially led to the foundation of a party. Um, and, of, and we'd hoped at that time in February um, that other MPs would come with us because we knew that there was a group, um, well, I'd been in discussions with 15, 20 more Labour MPs at meetings of different kinds who felt the same way as we did about Corbyn and the hopelessness of the situation. But for various personal and uh, political reasons, they chose not to. And then, of course, as soon as we left, um, there, were, there were the seven of us, and then Joan Ryan joined the day after, which made eight, and then the three Conservative women came, and that was 11. Um, the 11 of us, at that point, whilst you've got certain people in the Labour Party, like um, um, Emily Thornbury and... Uh, uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle, who were calling us scum and traitors and scabs and all kinds of other terms like that. Mm. Uh, in contrast, you had Tom Watson, the deputy leader, who said, "We are. I understand why they are saying this. Uh, we need to listen to them. We need to think about the future of our party. And he set up a group inside the Labour Party, in the Parliamentary Party, um, for the future of Britain. Um, and... 
that acted as a rallying point for disaffected MPs who probably are agreeing with us. And I had lots of private conversations with Labour MPs around that period who said, good luck, well done, uh, I, I wish I could be with you, or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they chose not to go. And they were waiting for Tom, waiting for Godot. And, of course, as I say in the piece I, I, when I was interviewed in the book, um, Tom Watson didn't do anything despite setting up that. And then he was outmaneuvered over the summer by John Landsman, the uh, owner of Momentum. Um, and um, then Tom decided to stand down from Parliament completely. Um, so, so the efforts that those people made didn't save the Labour Party from its terrible election defeat. But of course, some of them are still in Parliament. Many others lost their seats. But some of that group who were with Tom Watson around that period are now on Starmer's front bench. And others have got senior positions within various parts of, of the House of Commons. You think, and you, you mentioned um, some of the uh, abuse uh, that you uh, received. Uh, that do you think that the toxicity in which the, there is uh, still not just in the, the the parliamentary Labour Party, but within the pa Labour Party in general, is beginning to um, ebb away with with Keir Starmer's election, or do you think that? the toxicity is still there and it is still <clears throat> festering under the surface? Well, I still get a lot of toxic stuff on Twitter and uh, Facebook, but I have to say, um, once I'd left the Labour Party, the level of toxic stuff that I got went down remarkably. <laughs> it was as though um, these people, you know, the pylons that I got, I still get them even now um, from some people. Um, that the, the, they they fulfilled their object, which was to drive me out of the Labour Party. Um, and what I had I, was quite bad, but it was nowhere near what the women MPs get. Mm. And and people who are uh, uh, prominent women in in politics, um, the level of vicious stuff against um, some of the particularly uh, MPs who are Jewish or are black. Um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's worse than what I had, but um, I, I used to get quite a lot. And I, I acted, like, I suppose, a little bit like a troll magnet on some of my Twitter posts. Mm. And I, I, you know, and I used to take them on, but um, it is very time consuming and it can be very stressful doing that. Um, now, you mentioned there some of the um, abuse that um, women uh, MPs uh, have received, and women in politics, particularly those uh, from ethnic minorities. And of course, the other day, uh, Howard Beckett was suspended uh, from the Labour Party because of his comments relating to Priti Patel. What do you think that the fact that someone who is standing for such a, a senior trade union uh, position saying something uh, like that says about uh, the way that some parts of the, the left engage with their opponents? I won't comment on the particular case, but I will say that there is a strand of vicious, uh, anti-Semitic, misogynistic and uh, racist bullying uh, which operates in, in, in British politics 
some of it on the far left and some on the far right. And they it's kind of, you know, um, I suppose historically it's no surprise because, uh, you know, anti-Semitism of the left is, uh, um, or, anti, uh, or racism on the left is, is also uh, quite strong, mm-hmm. um, not just from the right. Um, and uh, it's unacceptable. And uh, I think it's always been there, but social media amplifies this. And uh, uh, it is it, something I'm glad that the Labour Party is taking a more robust approach and it's dealing with the these people um, which didn't happen under Corbyn. Um, we've discussed um, different uh, questions at, at length, the degree to which the Labour Party is changing or perhaps has changed. Do you think at any point you will want to or, or feel that you can rejoin the Labour Party? I, I've thought about this. Um, I've, I've, I've been interviewed about it by many journalists in the last year. Um, I will not apply to rejoin the Labour Party uh, unless I'm welcome. I have had no indication that I would be welcome. And under the party's rules, um, you are excluded from the party if you stand against it as a candidate or if you're expelled. I wasn't expelled, I resigned, but I did stand against it as a candidate. I think that could mean a, an exclusion for several years unless there's a special dispensation by the National Executive Committee. But my view is um, if the Labour Party wants to ever be in power again, to win general elections in uh, the United Kingdom, um, i.e. to win in England and Scotland, then the Labour Party has got to be a comfortable home for people with centre-left politics like me. Um, And I don't believe at the moment that it is, uh, and and, and I'm leaving aside my own personal case, um, I think there is still a very long way to go to deal with this poisonous, toxic culture, which unfortunately has come in too too much in too many areas, and is still there in some constituencies. I mean, uh, one of the constituencies in Liverpool, I think it's Luciana Berger's former constituency, Mm. Wavertree, this week has passed a motion of no confidence in Keir Starmer. Um, It's an indication of um, the kinds of things that are are happening. Um, And I think that the Labour Party has to basically go through a, a cathartic process and uh, be um, reconstructed um, on, in, as a uh, patriotic centre-left party that believes in the defence of our country and believes in uh, a, 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 a society of aspiration um, uh, and, and doesn't regard people who uh, want to have reform and and support uh, institutions of our country um, as somehow uh, the enemy. Towards the end of the podcast, it's been fascinating to talk to you, Mike, and I have one final question. Uh, we've touched a little bit uh, upon coronavirus, obviously not uh, a great deal, and because of the, the pandemic, all of us haven't been able to do the kind of things that we would 
normally be able to do. So when things are in a, a better uh, set of circumstances than they are at the moment, what one thing that you haven't been able to do are you most looking forward to being able to do again? I'm a season ticket holder at West Ham and I would love to have been there um, to celebrate uh, in, uh, the team and its performances this season. Um, uh, there was a ballot for tickets for the last match of the season and there are 10,000 tickets for the game against Southampton. But unfortunately, there are 50,000 of us <laughs> who have been disappointed. <laughs> um, so I won't be there. But that, that's the, they're going, going on the train, standing on the crowded platform, um, having a drink with my friends before the game, cheering, and, and then you know, walking back to Stratford Station to get the, get the train home. That, that, that's what I've, I've missed most. I also go to cricket at Lords quite often, and I've got tickets for test matches against um, uh, Pakistan and India, and I had one for the New Zealand game, but they're, they're not allowing the public into that one at the moment. So, but um, that's what I've, I would I would do enjoy most. Well, I hope you'll be able to um, see West Ham very soon and be able to uh, visit Lords as well very soon. Hopefully, um, if people want to find out more about the book, where should they go uh, to order yeah, the book or can, find out more about they it? it? They can get it on Amazon. It's also available on Kindle. Um, it's changed the independent group, uh, edited, compiled by Peter McNabb. You can also get it through Waterstones as well online. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Mike. Great to have you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.